Welcome to the Conversation Through Revelation podcast, a conversation designed to help you go further and deeper into the book of Revelation. I'm Tom Walker, your host, and I'm joined by Pastor Brian Broderson and Pastor John Wang. In today's episode, we cover chapter two, where we explore the performance, condition, and ministry of some of the churches in Asia Minor. And we also uncover just what Jesus has to say to them. Are looking at the seven churches, and tonight we're looking at four of them. And so these are the these are the letters that um, Jesus really dictated to John that were to go to the seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. And so we're going to make our way through these four tonight. We're going to look at some of the key statements in here, but we first want to talk just more generally about. Um, what is the message to the seven churches? And, and what is the significance of, of the seven churches? So today I received a question on Instagram from Julie, and she asked this question. She said, can you, well, asked, we would explain, can you explain about the seven churches? Are they actual church denominations or a place or an era of church time? Or is it just the types of sins that churches can fall into and then she had heard a couple of things about uh, Ephesus and uh, Smyrna, about a fragrance, Thyatira being a representative of the Catholic Church. And she said, all of this has confused me for a long time. So help. <laughs> so, okay, so we're going we're gonna to try to do that here. So, so I'm going to just pitch it over to John here to... Um, but let's talk about the, just the whole idea of the seven churches. Um, to answer that question, these are letters that were addressed to real historical churches that existed in real places in John's day. This is the first century Roman world. And so I think that's really important for us to understand that as we're reading through these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, that these are not to be read as merely allegorical or metaphorical messages, but Jesus had an audience in mind. And, um, and one thing that I, I do want to remind all of us as we launch into this conversation about the letters is remember last week in Revelation 1, Jesus had instructed John to write the book of Revelation in a specific flow. Write the things which you have seen, and we talked about that last week in Revelation 1. And then he says, write the things which are. That's present, that's current. And that is what we have in Revelation 2 and 3. And this is the reason why many people refer to these chapters as the church age. And that's why, to answer the question, it has application for real historical churches that existed 2,000 plus years ago, but it also has application for all of us. And, and this is further emphasized at the end of each letter when Jesus said, let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the spirit is saying to the churches, right? And then beginning in chapter four, that's when we look ahead. And so once we hit chapter four, that is all future. And so I think that this message is so timely for us because what Jesus said to this audience 2,000 years ago, man, as we read it and as we see that the, there were real situations, there were real spiritual conditions 
that were evident in, this, in these congregations of believers. But man, here we are reading this book and we're thinking, this is relevant for us today. Man, the things that the church had to deal with back then are real issues that we're having to deal with today. And that's why it's important for us first to understand what does Jesus say to these believers and how did it apply to them 2,000 years ago? Because once we understand that, then we, all these centuries later, can say, oh, this is what Jesus wants us to learn from these letters. Yeah, yeah. and, and let's keep in mind the, the number seven. We talked about seven last week. We talked about the significance of the number and how it's used so many times over and over through the book and how it's it's always used in a in a in a bit of a symbolic fashion it's speaking about the totality of something or the fullness of something so like we pointed out there were many many churches but why did Jesus single out these seven well these seven churches represent the experience of the church in its totality, really. So you can find, as John already said, there's, there's the historical uh, aspect where it, the, the people that received these letters in the first century, they, they knew better than anybody exactly what Jesus was talking about. We're, some of it, we have to guess a little bit, you know, but they weren't scratching their heads going, I wonder what he means by that woman Jezebel. Yeah. They were like, oh my gosh, that, we know exactly what he's talking about. So, uh, so it applied to them. But then I, I think in each one of these, you can find these same conditions that are described. You can find them all around the world today. Yeah. So they, they kind of represent the different possibilities for the church all throughout history. And then, of course, you can take it and make it even more personal, and you can see a message for the individual believer in here as well, because as individual believers, we might have some of these same issues that Jesus is addressing. One thing that we want to just touch on, I want to touch on this, there's also been the idea that in the seven churches, you have sort of a progression from the first century church all the way through to the final uh, church, uh, Laodicea, which would be the church at the time that the Lord returns. And so um, many like dispensationalist Bible commentators, they will look at uh, Ephesus as being symbolic of the, uh, of the apostolic age or just, just the post-apostolic age. And then Smyrna looks at uh, the period of um, persecution that happened under the Romans. And then you go to Pergamos and you have kind of this union between uh, the, the church and the state that develops. And then a little bit further, you go into this time where idolatry is very prevalent in the church and so on. Um, and John and I both came to the same conclusion on this. Um, that only works if you think of it strictly in terms of the Western church. It, it does pretty much sort of follow what we see in the history of the church from just simply the Western church uh, perspective. But of course, Jesus is talking to the church in its entirety, not limited to just the Western aspect of it, but he's talking to the church around the world. So because of that, um, although I used to think that there was that you know, that pattern where you could see each of the various stages of the history of the church. 
I personally no longer think that that's really the best way to see it. So I think, again, just the bigger picture of these are all possibilities and, and everything that we're going to see in these seven churches, you can find in individual churches today. You can find in groups of churches in different regions today as well. So that's how we want to sort of look at it as we approach it. Now, now we've got four churches here in the second chapter. And, you know, normally if, if I was just going to preach on Revelation, I'd probably just do one a week. So, so we're going to try to get through four of these tonight. So we're going to have to go, uh, rather quickly. We don't want to get bogged down in too much detail or we'll never, we'll never get through. So we're just going to, we're just going to have a go, as Tom would say. That's a Britishism. We're just going to jump in and, uh, and see how we end up, but we're going to definitely make our way through. But, but let me just say one more thing and then I'll, I'm going to sit back and let you guys take, take it from there. But, um, you know, as you look at each of the letters, they're all, they're all broken down similarly. So you have, you have the, the greeting from Jesus and then he's greeting each of the churches and he's reminding them of a certain aspect of his um, person that was revealed in the vision of chapter one. So like here with Ephesus, uh, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That's exactly what we read in the first chapter. So you have that greeting where he refers, uh, you know, introduces himself based on one of those pictures. And then you have generally, you have a commendation. You have Jesus commending the church for the good things. There are two of the churches that he has no commending word for, but, but five of them he, he commends. And then he goes into a correction. So he starts to address the problem. And then from there, he gives a warning. And then finally, he gives a promise. And so that's, that's kind of how we just want to walk through each of these. So, okay. Who wants to jump in on Ephesus? Um, well, that's hot. So, um, to, like, before we start kind of really digging into it, I think um, that consider this church like the New York. So just think about, like, the massiveness of New York and kind of the hustle and bustle that goes on. This is, like, the um, major point of Asia Minor. This is, like, the big one. And so this was the church that birthed all of the other churches coming up in this later chapter, um, which... And, and this point where we are is actually only 40 years after Paul first visited it. And so the idea of this only being like the second generation of people after Paul like shows you how quickly you can slip back into issues within the church. Yeah. Which to me, like as the benchmark to set it up, that's kind of amazing that think about like the fathers before that, it was so quick that um, there were so many issues. So I just wanted to kind of throw that one in there and kind of the massiveness of this place yeah. as we jump in. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I know for me, um, the letter to the church of Ephesus is, it's really important because like what Tom was saying, Jesus is addressing a congregation that is now second and third generation believers. I mean, think about this church and, and I think that most of us are familiar about what the message is that Jesus sends to these believers but this is a church that was founded by Paul. 
This is a church that was influenced by Apollos. This is a church that had Aquila and Priscilla serving there. This is a church that had Timothy pastoring them. This is a church that had the apostle John for crying out loud, you know, pastoring this church. I mean, could you imagine going to church on Sunday morning and ask, and people ask you, hey, who's your pastor? John, John the eyewitness. What's he, he's gonna be talking about Jesus. And according to church tradition, remember when Jesus entrusted Mary to John's care, that according to tradition, John took Mary with him to Ephesus. In fact, the traditional burial site of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in Ephesus. And so imagine that, going to a home fellowship or a potluck, and there she is, Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, church tradition, the church fathers fondly looked at Ephesus as the most blessed, and they were the city of the apostles. But here they are. Now we're talking second and third generation believers, and Jesus is having to address an issue of coldness of heart towards him. And so I, I just wanted to encourage any of you that might be watching this today, if you've grown up in a Christian home, if you've grown up going to Christian school or um, homeschool, um, I'll tell you the importance of you having your own personal encounter, your own personal relationship with Christ is so important because what's gonna end up happening is we're gonna see in this letter if your affections for Christ isn't heart level, heartfelt, it's easy to drift into activism because these guys were active. It's easy to have a loveless heart and be an activist. Or these guys were scholars. They were all about apologetics. Guys, do you know it's, it's possible to get passionate about apologetics without loving Jesus? And these guys were discerning, and these guys were even persevering. Things were getting tough, but they were rallying together and saying, no, we're gonna make it through. But I'll tell you what, this is a generation that needed to have a personal encounter with Christ. So let me just say this um, about these letters. As Brian mentioned, each of these letters begins with a specific introduction of Jesus that is tethered to the description that we read in chapter one, but it's important that you understand that that description and what follows in chapters two and three are strategic. Jesus is not only revealing his glory. Remember, this book is all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we don't see Jesus, we're missing the point of the book. But each of these descriptions, they speak specifically into the situation and condition of the people that Jesus is addressing. And so I find it interesting that Jesus, speaking to this church, he begins by saying that he holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So as we look at what this message is, here's the one thing you need to know about these believers. They needed to know, number one, Jesus was in charge. Remember, the seven angels represents the seven messengers or possibly the overseers of the churches. He's the one who's in charge, but secondly, he's in their midst. And so if there's anything that we need to understand about Jesus and what he says in this letter is we need to know those two things. Number one, he has the right to say what he says here. No one can push back and say, who gives you the right to say that to me? He holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
And number two, he's in their midst, which can speak of many different things in terms of his awareness that he sees, but also you get a sense that here's a church that has grown cold in their affections for Christ, but Jesus still wants to be with them. Amen. Uh, you know, one, one thing just to touch on for one second, remember too, because sometimes I forget this when I'm, when I'm reading this letter, I, sometimes I forget that we have the epistle to the Ephesians and, you know, it's like, this is the same church. These are the same people, but of course, uh, a second generation, maybe a third generation. And, and like John's saying, you know, there, there's always that danger and, and of course, this happened with Israel. Remember Israel, uh, they, they, you know, come out of Egypt and they survive the wilderness and, you know, many perish in the wilderness. But that generation that comes through, uh, Joshua leads them in and they, they conquer the land and, and they know the Lord. But man, you know, when you transition from Joshua into Judges, you're already dealing with a generation that doesn't know the Lord. They... They didn't know the Lord. And it actually says there that uh, the people followed the Lord all the days of Joshua. But then another generation arose that didn't know the Lord. And how quickly that can happen. And, you know, even if we think more specifically about our church here, you know, so we are in, you know, second, third, fourth generation of, of Calvary Chapel, maybe even fifth generation. And, you know, people can think back to the Jesus people days and all the excitement and everything like that. And that's all wonderful. That's amazing. But unless we maintain that fervency and that passion for Jesus, it doesn't matter what else we do. It doesn't matter how good. And, th and that's the thing about, you know, the church that Jesus addresses here. From the outside looking in, this is the ideal church. I mean, this is the church that everybody says, I want to make it to that church. I want to visit that church. Like you said, John, all this, these, these illustrious names that are, you know, it's a, kind of like Moody Church or something, you know, where you've got this history of all of these famous pastors or maybe like a Westminster Chapel in London or something, you know, where you want to go to this place where you've heard all of these amazing things that have happened. But yet um, now what's happened is there's no longer that deep personal devotional love for Jesus. Now it's just a, a well-oiled machine. And man, it looks great. It's shiny and it's, um, you know, impactful in so many ways, but, but the heart is kind of gone out of it. And, and, you know, as people have pointed out with movements and so forth, you go from a uh, sometimes a man, you know, God raises up a man, he raises up a generation, and then it becomes a movement, and, and then it becomes a monument, and then it becomes a mausoleum. <laughs> and it's just a, you know, it's just a dead thing. And God help us, we don't, we don't want to be there. And that's really the big, the big lesson of Ephesus, right? So Jesus commends them for all the things that John was talking about there. And then he says, nevertheless... I have this against you. And what is it that you've left your first love? You've left off that place of just loving me. And I don't know, you know, this is something that I think, I think every Christian 
goes through a phase where you just, this does happen somehow. You know, you get, you get comfortable, uh, you get used to being saved, you're around saved people all the time, and, and you can kind of just forget um, just the wonder and the beauty and the glory of, of your own salvation and just that simple love that drew you to Jesus and that love that you had for him. And whenever we recognize that that has happened, we have got to do exactly what Jesus said here. And, and his, the remedy was, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So it's just, you know, that remembering of, of that simplicity of that love relationship. And, you know, you can look through so many places in scripture. I think of Jeremiah, you know, where the Lord is pleading with the people. Like what, what happened to those days when you were like a, a bride that was so thrilled about the bridegroom? You know, so this is something the Lord's been talking to his people about for ages, right? And so, you know, just always maintaining that, that first love, that place where, you know, you didn't really know much. You hadn't really done anything. Um, but man, you knew that Jesus loved you and you knew you were saved and you were so in love with him because of that. So, and you know, what's so interesting is because they were so busy, um, had Jesus not come to them and addressed the problem, they would have continued life thinking there's no problem. I think that's one of the things that's really scary about heartless Christianity is that we start substituting busyness for devotion and affection. And the more busy we are, that we, we start convincing ourselves that we're more spiritual. But notice that Jesus not only says you abandoned your first love, but notice how he describes their spiritual state. You have fallen. These guys had no idea how far they had fallen had Jesus not addressed it. And that's why I think this letter is so good is I know for me, I have to come back to it and just let the Holy Spirit expose my heart and show me areas where I might um, be in a place where I, I don't wanna think I'm in, but I might be in. I think for me, like I think about school for me wasn't all that long ago, which you might be surprised looking at me. Um, and, you know, you, you go through the year and you're like, man, I did so well. Look at all these works I did. Like, I, I labored hard and I, I, I passed all my exams. And then the, the teacher slides you the report card and it says, hey, you didn't quite hit the mark. You left the original things that we looked at and we talked about and the things that were important to me. So I think about Jesus. Like, can you imagine the idea, even like a spouse who's like, slides you this card and is like, hey, the relationship that we had, you're not there anymore. I think... I'd very quickly be like, okay, I'm going to change right now because to, to me, that's like the idea of Jesus even approaching me and saying, hey, here's, here's a bunch of issues with you. You need to change would make me react pretty quickly. Um, and so I think like um, the result of that is that you should go back and repeat those original things. So um, for me to look back at spiritual landmarks in my life, so Bible study or devotional time of God, prayer time, like fellowship with others, and if, if I look at those landmarks and see how far I've drifted, I need to then like pull myself back in line and reestablish myself in those places. And I think that's where your relationship with God really will thrive. So I think a personal application for me is to like return back to when I was that excited new Christian who was really like gone home, ready to go with, with all things faith. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, 
Tom, you know this. I know this. John, you know this. And, and I think all of us know it to some degree as well. Um, you, you can. This, this is a, it's like um, an occupational hazard for people in ministry <laughs> is that you, you fall in love with the ministry and you just, everything you're doing, you know, it's so exciting and you're serving God and you're with the, the people of God and, you know, all of this stuff. But, but a lot of times Jesus just starts getting, sort not intentionally, but he just gets sort of left out of a lot of things. And then he just sort of gets pushed out. And then, you know, you can have times where, I mean, you're with, you're with like the leadership of great movements and works and everybody's talking about all the great things that are happening, but nobody's really talking about Jesus. And nobody's really, you know, even saying, hey, let's just stop and praise the Lord. And it's, the, it's those simple childlike things that we have to just keep going back to. And, you know, Tom brought this up earlier when we were chatting in the office before we came out. Um, just this whole thing. So Jesus says, you know, remember from uh, where you've fallen, repent and do the first works and here's the warning, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So the question is, what does that mean? And I personally think what Jesus is talking about, remember, um, he gives us the picture of he's the one who's walking in the midst of the lampstands. So I think what he's saying is that if you go on in this state, my presence will no longer be with you. Uh, he's not saying you're not going to be saved. He's not saying like, hey, you're going to lose your salvation. He's just saying that my, my presence will not abide in a place where I'm not loved. And that, that's like the worst thing imaginable, you know, that the presence of the Lord would be just sort of, you know, taken away from us. I mean, that in the Old Testament, that was called Ichabod. The glory had departed. And so Israel had, they had all the external things still. They had the temple, they had all of that, but the very presence of God was no longer there. And, and God help us, you know, that we would never, ever come to a place where uh, the glory has departed, where the presence of the Lord is no longer sensed among us. Because that's the, I, to me, that's the big attraction. That's why I'm here. That's why I, I'm going to go to a church because Jesus is there, so... Yeah, and I know, and I know that yeah, it is worth clapping for. And I know that we need to move on to the next letter, but I just want to wrap up this letter by by just looking at verse um, seven, where he addresses the overcomers in the Christian Standard Bible. It's the conquerors, and you're going to find this in each of the seven letters. So Jesus is addressing believers according to First John chapter five verses four and five. So that would be another great passage to write in your margin. First John five verses four and five. It describes who these overcomers are. They are number one, people who have faith in Christ. And number two, um, that, that um, faith in first John five, it's an ongoing persevering faith. So the idea isn't someone who just walks forward at an altar call and then goes back home and doesn't walk with Jesus anymore. But the overcomers are those who have real faith in Christ and they continue walking with Jesus for the rest of their life. And so Jesus is gonna address these overcomers in each of these letters, but just to tie into everything that we've just said about this letter, notice what he promises to those who overcome, people who continue walking with Jesus to 
the end. He says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, over 200 references to the Old Testament um, citations and over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. So this is a book that we need to read in light of the rest of scripture. And this word paradise is a word that shows up to speak of heaven, but in our English language, it is a word that we have gained from the Persian language. So paradise is a Persian word. And the word paradise, it means either a enclosed area by walls, but this enclosed area is carrying the idea of a beautiful garden. Now, here we are in the last book of the Bible. How did the first book of the Bible begin? In a garden. And what does Genesis chapter three tell us about what God did in the cool of the day? he would walk. Why? The implication is he would fellowship with the first humans. And so here he is speaking to a church that had abandoned their first love and he's calling them back. Why? So that they could be in fellowship together forever. Guys, I know that sometimes we think that what God wants more from us is our duty and mechanics and stuff. But at the end of the day, you know what Jesus wants? He wants you. He wants time with you because we were made for that. And I think this letter speaks to us on that level. There's a, there's a reference here to the Nicolaitans. We're gonna move on and we'll talk about it when we get to uh, Pergamos because it comes up there again. We'll just answer that really quickly. But, but moving on now to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, you know, the, it, it's so interesting here because you have... Uh, Ephesus, you know, as was mentioned, was probably, um, I mean, we, we know it was, it was planted by the Apostle Paul. It was the kind of the hub uh, for the church in Asia Minor. And these other churches probably were uh, spinoffs of it. They probably were like church plants, you know, that came out of it. And so, but the point that I want to make is the difference in their conditions was, was quite um, striking, really. And so where Ephesus, you've got all of this success and prosperity and you know, outward uh, influence and, and things of that nature, Smyrna is, is considerably different. And so Jesus, uh, he greets them as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And notice what he says, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. And so here's a church that's actually poor. It's a poor church that is going through difficult times. Now, for some people, that is an oxymoron. That's like a contradiction. If, if you're a, a, you know, a, a faithful church, if you're a thriving church, if you're a church that really believes God, then you're going to be prosperous. You're going to be successful. You're never going to have those kinds of struggles and things. Well, this letter just completely refutes that. Uh, but, but obviously some people thought that there's probably something wrong with the church in Smyrna. Uh, you know, they're, they've got all this trouble. They're poor, but Jesus says, but you're actually rich. 
So from the human standpoint, they seem to be, you know, I, we're, we're, we're not quite sure about what's happening in Smyrna, but the Lord looks upon Smyrna and uh, with, with great fondness and with great tenderness. And this is the one church, uh, Philadelphia as well, but this is the one church that Jesus does not have any word of correction or condemnation for. So he commends them entirely. And um, he goes on and he describes their situation. Uh, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And the thing I want to just remind us of here, again, um, you know, I think it's, it's partially our culture. It's partially just the way, you know, we've grown up and the way we think in especially the Western world and especially in the United States. Uh, we don't equate these kinds of difficulties and sufferings and challenges with the blessing of God. But there is a, a, a tremendous blessing on the Lord. Uh, today in our pastoral staff meeting, we were having a conversation. Uh, Pastor John Chubik was just kind of updating us. He's been in conversation with people around the world, India, China, places like that. And, you know, some pretty intense persecution is really starting to develop in those places. And, you know, all over the world, we have churches, we have uh, churches on all of the different continents. Um, the vast majority of them are small. And they would be uh, considered poor. And they would also um, have a lot of challenges and difficulties and problems. And we might question like, well, you know, is God really working there? Because look at how small it is. Or look at all the trouble they're always having. But as, as John was reminding us of some of that stuff, I was telling, I just chimed in and I said, you know, I've been listening to uh, Cheryl and Jasmine's podcast, Women You Should Know. I don't know if you are listening to that, but I am. And, uh, but they keep talking about these, these amazing women who pioneered mission works and you know, did all of this stuff. And almost every episode they've done, the story has always been in the context of tribulation, suffering, conflict, difficulty, poverty, sickness, but yet in the midst of all this death, even the one that she did this past week, uh, this Darlene Diebler Rose, I mean, it's all, you know, the, the, a large portion of it takes place in the context of a Japanese internment camp during the second world war and, you know, the things that happened there. But then you see this amazing grace and richness of Jesus in the middle of all that. And that's what Smyrna was like. Smyrna was a church that was suffering, but yet Jesus was well aware of their suffering and he was promising them the crown of life. Just hang in there, persevere. And he reminds them that he was dead, but he's alive forevermore. So that would have been, you know, a tremendous encouragement to them. Did you guys have anything you want to say? Yeah, um, the idea of um, God saying, don't be lax on your faith to me. In fact, um, Jesus counsels them not to be afraid. So I feel like the easy thing will be, you know what, I'm out. Like this whole Jesus thing, I'm done. 
um, because I don't want to be killed or thrown into prison or be tried for 10 days. Like, to me, that sounds like a dreadful thing to have to go through. Um, so um, the idea of faith to me, um, it doesn't mean walking from victory to victory. It actually means that you've walked through this battle to get to the other side. And so for these guys, um, faith for them looks like like winning this fight and getting like out of this this problem. But guys, what what caused them to be in such a bad place? Because uh, like, it's such a short section right here. So briefly, I know we have to do like two more, but like, why was the Smyrna church so so bad? Why in the sense that why they were being persecuted? Yeah. yeah. Well, Smyrna. Um, one thing you need to know about the city is that Smyrna was the center of Emperor Caesar worship. And so it was required for all the residents of Smyrna to go to their um, version of City Hall and to offer a pinch of incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. If you did not do that, um, one, you did not get a certificate that would allow you to get employment. And without that certificate and you can't get employment, guess what? You don't work, you don't get paid, you get poor. And so here Jesus is saying, look, I know about your poverty. And all of that was connected to their loyalty to Christ. But also later, notice that Jesus says that he's anticipating that more intense persecution was about to come, which, um, which like what Tom was saying, there's that call of, of courage to not be afraid. But here's the thing to me that I think is so amazing. Jesus knows what Satan was planning. I think that sometimes we feel like when Satan does something in the world, it freaks Jesus out because he didn't expect that pitch to come down the line, right? No, Jesus knew what Satan was planning. And here's the next question then, then why did he permit it? And it goes along with what Pastor Brian was saying. I think that we need a good, healthy, biblical theology about suffering. And notice that Jesus said that the devil is, and he tells him, you're gonna be thrown into prison. 10 days is probably a symbolic number of a period of time. But notice he says to test you. Now, <clears throat> think about what the devil's original plan was. Do you really think it was to test them or to destroy them? I think because Jesus was still involved in the suffering of the church there, that he didn't permit destruction he permitted testing. Why? Because it's in the time of suffering, it's in the time of persecution that God's people get to show off, number one, who they really are and what they're really made of, and number two, how amazing Jesus is. And I think that's good for us because right now we're talking about suffering in our world today. And so often, if we're not careful, we're just all fighting about our, our individual rights but maybe God wants to show the world what the church is made of. Maybe God wants to show the world how amazing Jesus is by the way the church endures through suffering. And so Jesus here, he looks at them and he says, suffering's coming, but I'm gonna allow it because you're gonna be refined like gold is refined in the fire and you're gonna show the world how amazing I am. Um, Smyrna was based, uh, it had like this natural harbor and it became the chief um, export of myrrh. And so I love that idea of like, when you crush myrrh and it smells super strong, like as the Smyrnans were being crushed, 
they were giving off this beautiful aroma of Christ and everyone knew it and everyone could see it. And I think for us today, like the idea of us being crushed under the weight of like, you can't sing in church, the coronavirus, masks, all these problems, are we, is the reaction for us gonna be this bitterness or are we gonna turn around and like expel this beautiful aroma of Christ? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think I know where I wanna be. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And here's the one thing, I, I love this part, is um, that word crown, it's the Greek word Stephanon, and it comes from the word Stephanos. And guess what name comes from Stephanos? Stephen. Who was the first martyr of the early church? A man named Stephen. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the Stephanos of life. That's the victor's crown. And isn't it interesting that God rewarded the first martyrs, victors crowned in the New Testament to a man who bears the name Stephanon? Isn't that amazing? That's great. So, uh, one last thing on this. Um, I was just thinking as John was talking, you know, sometimes you, you hear about the sufferings of people. And um, again, you know, hearkening back to the podcast, um, you know, here's, here's this woman named Darlene, uh, you know, a young lady. Um, she's 20, 19 years old, meet, meets a man who's 12 years older. Uh, he's a preacher. He's a missionary. Uh, she, you know, they, they fall in love. God calls them. They go, they go off and they, they go to minister in um, New Guinea. And uh, then the war breaks out and eventually they have to flee. And then, they, like I said, they end up in a, in a Japanese internment camp and they are brutalized. He, he actually, her husband dies. Uh, in, they're separated. And then um, during the separation, he dies. She doesn't know he dies until several months later. Uh, but, but she's in this, this camp and they are being brutalized by these soldiers, just absolutely brutalized. A camp full of women, and they're being beaten regularly, and you know they're deprived of every imaginable comfort and, and food, and you know all all of these things. And in the story, there's a particular soldier, and he is um, he's a commander, and he actually has the name the maniac because that's he's just brutal, and he he beat a man to death. And that's how he got his name. And she ends up under his uh, charge and he beats her regularly. And, you know, you look at this kind of stuff and you think, Lord, how could this even happen? I mean, how, you know, I think, again, I think we so often think like, you, you got to be out of the will of God for stuff like that to happen. You know, if, if you're really following the Lord, you're going to be safe and protected and so on. And, and yet, you know, she wasn't at all. And on one particular occasion where he was threatening and, you know, all, all of this, she just begins to share the gospel with him and says, you know, I, I pray for you and God loves you and God will forgive you. And, and in the course of this, he actually has to leave the room. He tears up and he has to leave the room. So he, he leaves the room and, you know, a bunch of things transpire. She ends up going to another place and all of this, you know, make a long story short, uh, in the end, after she is freed and she ends up back in uh, America and then remarries another man, they go off to the mission field back to New Guinea where she originally started with her first husband. Uh, but there's a, 
there, there's a, you know, a Christian uh, in Japan who meets a man who has a little shop of some sort, you know, selling goods there in one of the cities. And she's a Christian and she starts talking to him. And he asks her if she's ever heard of this woman named Darlene. And she actually knew her. And he said, would you please tell her that I, the maniac, became a Christian and I am now serving Jesus and following Jesus. And I mean, you know, you're just like, holy smokes, you know, who would have ever guessed that's where the story was going. But, you know, in in all of these kinds of things, um, God, and, and she talks about how the Lord, she would pray and the Lord would speak to her about being a good soldier. Take it like a soldier. And he would give her the grace to take it. And, and so, you know, that was in the 1940s during the Second World War. Smyrna was 2,000 years ago. But these kinds of things are happening today. So like we said, these are, these are snapshots of what the church is going to look like throughout the ages. There will be segments of the church. There will be geographical areas where the way of life for Christians is suffering. And, you know, we have a different situation, at least we have had, it could change, but this kind of stuff, it can seem so foreign to us that we're tempted to think that, well, maybe somehow, you know, they're not right with God or how, but I mean, we just have to go back to the biblical text and look, now Jesus says, no, this is, this is your state. You are poor, but you're really rich and um, I'm with you. And the final word to him who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so that promise of, of ultimate victory. So anyway, Pergamos and Thyatira. Pergamos and Thyatira have a lot of similarities. So let's try to maybe sort of blend them together and, and get through them. So take it away, somebody. Yeah, Pergamum, um, if, you were, if you were to give like a, a general application for what Jesus is addressing, the issue is compromise. Um, as you read through this letter, you see two sets of pronouns. Jesus addresses you, speaking to the church, and he addresses those. Speaking about non-Christians that have a very corrupting influence and they have allowed them into their congregations, but not just as guests to participate in their worship and to hear about Jesus, but these guys were actually influencing the culture, the society of that church there in Pergamos. Now Thyatira, um, that has generally been referred to as the corrupt church because there the problem isn't just that that they were um, making friends with pagans, but they actually brought in a woman who was identified as Jezebel, which some people have asked, is that really her real name or was God just referencing from the Old Testament um, this woman named Jezebel that was the wife of King Ahab? And, and which seems to be the, the more accurate way of understanding it because you remember 
Jezebel, she's the one um, that brought the worship of Baal into the kingdom of Israel. And in both churches, the problem has been sexual immorality and, um, and spiritual idolatry. For the, pro- for the case in, in Pergamum, Jesus addresses them as the one who has the sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It's interesting that in Pergamum, the Roman governors had what was called the right of the sword. In other words, the Roman governors in Pergamum, and remember, Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor. And so the right of the sword meant that the Roman governor had the right to either allow someone to live or to command someone to die. He had all the legal jurisdiction to deal with anything that he saw as being problematic against the Roman Empire. And writing to Thyatira, Jesus there, he addresses himself among many things. One of the most intense things, he says, My, he has eyes like flames of fire. And I think that that's powerful because I think the problem with so many people in the church is that we fail to look at sin through the eyes of Jesus. As long as we try to understand sin through our own eyes, we will always make excuses for it. But if we try to understand, look at sin through the perspective, look at sin through the eyes of Jesus, and listen, there are flames. It literally means his eyes are shooting flames of fire and riding to Thyatira, he says that he would bring discipline and judgment and then all will know that I am the one who searches the minds and hearts. So his eyes exposes, his eyes can see through all of our facade. And so Jesus deals with the compromise as the one who literally has the right of the sword, who is able to separate between the you and the those and the spiritual corruption in dealing with the people that the church had opened the door to this woman to literally become a leader in the church to influence the spiritual flow and the, the, the way that they behaved. So the, um, you know, with, with the letters too, we, so, you know, trying to, to understand exactly how, how Jesus is communicating through the various things he's saying. Some people think that even the, um, sometimes the message, part of the message is even in the, the location of the church. So Pergamos uh, comes from the, the, the word that means marriage. And so some people see that in the very, you know, title of the, or, you know, the name of, of the city, you have a hint at what the issue is, that you have the church being married to the world. And so that, that, is, that is a possibility. Um, these are things that are a little bit more subjective because it doesn't tell us that's exactly what it is. But then when you get like into Laodicea, for example, we know certain things about the city of Laodicea. We know that it was a place where they manufactured a certain kind of an eye balm. And Jesus actually refers to, um, he would give them salve for their eyes that they could see. So we can see that Jesus is using some of the experiences of the very, uh, you know, culture and 
perhaps again, even sometimes the, you know, the, the name of the place, it's all part of the message that he's given. Now with Pergamum, notice here, he refers to it as uh, the place where Satan's throne dwells. And um, many believe that uh, when the Babylonian religion uh, was sort of driven out of the region by the Persians, that it relocated to Pergamum. And so he refers to it as a place where Satan's throne is. And so some say it's because of the relocation of the Babylonian religion there. Again, that's a little bit of speculation, but there is some uh, history to that. Um, but Jesus commends them on the one hand because in the days of, of Antipas, his faithful martyr, they did not deny his name. But then what he has against them is that they have allowed, um, and here he references uh, the doctrine of Balaam. So, so once again, we see this connection back to the Old Testament. So Thyatira, connection back to the, the story of Jezebel and Kings, and now the story of uh, Balaam back in Numbers, chapters 22 through 25 is where you find the story of Balaam. And maybe you remember, Balaam was that prophet who was, in a sense, a false prophet, but he was, in another sense, an actual real prophet. He had... Uh, some of the most powerful messianic prophecies in all of the, uh, the books of Moses, for sure. Uh, but what Balaam did in the end, you remember King Balak called Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel, and Balaam couldn't do it uh, because God wouldn't allow him to curse them. But in the end, uh, because Balak had offered Balaam a substantial amount of money, and Balaam said, well, sorry, I can't do it. And Balak said, well, hey, it's your, it's your loss. I was going to make you rich, but because you're not complying, uh, you, you've lost all of that. Well, in the end, Balaam didn't want to lose the, the financial um, reward. And so he counseled Balak and gave him advice on how he could bring a curse upon the children of Israel if he would send the young women into the camp of Israel and they would seduce the young men and then lead them into their idolatry. So that's the story. And now Jesus is saying that there's something similar in Pergamum that's taking place. And so just like there was something with Jezebel that was similar, that was taking place in Thyatira, so there was something similar there. And in both cases, you have the two issues of sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. And um, in, in uh, Pergamum, you, you just, it's just the reversal. In Pergamum, it's the idols that come first and then the sexual morality. Uh, and then in Thyatira, it's the, it's the opposite of that. And all of that to say, um, you know, the question is, is, is that referring to a literal sexual immorality? Is it referring to some sort of a idea of a spiritual uh, kind of, a, you know, oftentimes God would, through the prophets, speak of Israel's uh, harlotry, you know, that they were Hosea, uh, you know, his wife is a prostitute. And God says, your wife is like Israel. So is it, is it a literal um, idolatry that's happening or is it like a spiritual idolatry? 
And it's, it's probably both. So again, it's one of those things that we don't, we're not able to pinpoint exactly. This, this is the one that I'm, I've never been able to really figure out exactly what the issues were. But I think it's safe to say that there was real sexual immorality that was tied to idolatry because all throughout history, idolatry and sexual immorality go hand in hand. It's just, it's a common uh, connection historically down to this very day. But we do have the mention of the Nicolaitans here. And so let's just uh, quickly touch on that. So Jesus says to the church in Ephesus that he commended them because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. Here in Pergamos, they actually had embraced the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, here's the big question. What is the doctrine? Who were the Nicolaitans and what was their doctrine? What's the answer? <laughs> well, Nicolaitans simply means the followers of Nicholas. And it's interesting that the church fathers, um, many reliable church fathers, they, they referenced Nicholas to be one of the seven that we read about in Acts chapter six, verse five. And, and so at least according to the church fathers, they believe that over time, Nicholas had derailed and maybe um, it was because of confusion regarding the gospel of grace. Um, you remember that even Peter speaking about the writings of Paul said, man, some of the stuff he's writing about is really hard to understand. And people that are untrained, they twist it to their advantage. And so the early church fathers, they, um, at least the ones that I've read, they, they all seem to connect this with Nicholas. But whoever this Nicholas was, um, there's, it's still pretty vague in terms of what his heresy was, but the fact that he's mentioned here in Pergamos connected with sexual idolatry or spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality, they believe that Nicholas was promoting this kind of free practice among believers. <clears throat> but the other thing that's interesting too is the word Nicolaitan um, means to conquer the people. So I don't know if you want to address that. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the church fathers, remember that the church fathers now are, um, they're a generation or two removed from the apostolic period. So they're not, uh, although, although we can learn a lot from them and, you know, sometimes there's some amazing insights you get from them, not everything they said was necessarily exactly the way it was. So... Um, yeah, so, so that's one theory. The other theory is that Nicolaitan, meaning, you know, to rule over the people or to dominate the people. Uh, some see this as the beginning of a, um, the setting up of a hierarchy that, that you would see most obviously, say, in like the Roman Catholic Church, where you have, you have a spiritual leadership and then you have a laity. And so some people see that that, they see that as developing. But the people that see that as developing also generally would look at Thyatira and think, well, this is the Roman Catholic Church that's actually being sort of in code, um, you know, spoken about here. So um, the answer to the question is we don't know <laughs> exactly who the Nicolaitans were and what they were doing. But, you know, it could, it could be either one of those things. But to me... Um, the, the, the idea that from the church fathers that he, you know, was 
formally one of the uh, seven and that he uh, sort of apostatized. That to me is a stretch. I, I kind of, I, I don't like that one. <laughs> so so um, my understanding of it is this idea that um, he pretty much went around and was like, you're saved under grace, so you can pretty much do whatever you want. So the idea of that hand in hand with this idol, like sex worship stuff, I'm like, that. that is the... The bad end happening right there. That doesn't look good. But um, so back to what you said about how they were the ones that conquered. It says here, the ones who conquered, I will give um, some hidden manna and also this white stone with a new name written on it. What does that mean? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so again, here it's interesting because you have the connection back to the Old Testament reference with the manna. But then you have this white stone. So this would be something that doesn't have a, a connection back to the Old Testament scripture, but apparently it uh, would be something that the, the current uh, you know, recipients of the letter would understand. So most people say that um, this, in you know, a, a court procedure, uh, there would be a, a white stone and a black stone. The black stone you were guilty, uh, the white stone, you were acquitted. And so some people say that that is the reference that Jesus um, is, is using here, that the people at the time would have understood it because that was a common practice. And again, these are some of the things we just don't know for sure. That sounds good. I, I like that. I like that too. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, because it's true, right? Um, he's you know, that, that white stone of acquittal. We, our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did and we're washed as, as white as snow. So let's just, let's just finally um, look at just the end of, of the chapter here with Thyatira and just the, the promise here to, to the overcomer is really great to he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. I will, as I also have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So what an amazing promise uh, to, you know, this is the promise to rule and reign with Christ. And there are several places here in Revelation where we find uh, that being alluded to. But then um, I will give him the morning star. And I think really, if, if we look at Revelation itself, Jesus is referred to in Revelation as the morning star. And so I think what he's saying is, I will give you myself. And there's nothing greater that we could be given. There's nothing greater that we could have or experience than that deepest, most intimate fellowship with Christ. And I think that's, that is the promise. You know, when, it, when it's all said and done, all of the glory of heaven and, and all of, uh, you know, the universe and eternity and all of those things, as glorious as they will be, they will all pale in comparison to Jesus himself. And so he's, he's the prize in the end. He's the, he's the great reward. Um, as God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. So I think that that's what the Lord's referring to there. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you rate us in your podcast app, subscribe and share with a friend. If you're looking for more resources, head over to cccm.com where you'll find a full archive of previous messages. Again, thanks so much for joining us. We hope to see you next time in the Conversation Through Revelation podcast.